When I lived in New Ulm, Minnesota, they had a restaurant there called the Country Kitchen. You know the country kitchen. That's fantastic. For real, did you eat at the New Alm Country Kitchen? Then you can verify these facts about that. Um, I, I didn't make a lot of money back in those days, and so I couldn't go out to eat very often. But when I did, the country kitchen was my go-to for breakfast. It was like a Keys Cafe or a original pancake house, but with a small town feel. That's what it, that's what it felt like. So now fast forward about 15 years, and about the time we were launching a manual, I got asked to go speak in Estes Park, Colorado. So we took a road trip, and we're driving through Nebraska. It was our family, and then also uh, my in-laws were in another car, and we're, we're caravanning out there. And when you get to Nebraska, there's not a lot of choices to eat. And so we were looking for places, and then I saw a sign for Country Kitchen. So I'm like, that's where we got to go. We got to go to the Country Kitchen. Oh, to this day, we still talk about that stop because that country kitchen in Nebraska, that was really, really bad. Really, really bad. It was like going out to eat at a below average gas station, but that's your restaurant experience. And maybe you've had an experience like that where you thought something was going to be one thing and it turned out to be something else. It's like when you've had real Mexican food and then you go to Taco Bell, right? It, it's, this is not that, right? Or some of you may have had this experience, you go to the Minnesota State Fair, and then you go to another state fair, and you're like, you're, you're calling this a state fair? This is not that. You maybe had that experience. Now, for the record, there are times where it's okay just to pretend that something is what it isn't. Sometimes it's fine. For example, many of you have met Bob. Bob. Bob helps us out on a lot of our teen retreats. And over the years, he's pretended to be a lot of things that he isn't. So we can put up a picture. Here's Bob in his natural state. There's Bob as himself. Here's Bob as an alien. Here is Bob as Brock Rock. Here is Bob as Captain America. Here is Bob as Batman. These are all things that Bob has been at one of our teen retreats. Here's Bob as a centurion. Here's Bob as a barbarian. Here's Bob as the Joker. Here's Bob as the Riddler. Here is Bob as Buddy the Elf. Here is Bob as Mario and Luigi and the world's greatest superhero, Butterfly Boy. <laughs> and finally, here is Bob um, as a Packers fan. Now, this one, this last one, this is the most ridiculous one of all because everyone knows Bob is not a Packers fan. Bob is a Vikings fan. So here's the thing about Bob. We, we could pull off one of our team, teen retreats without Bob. It would be possible, not the same, but it would be possible but it wouldn't be one of our retreats if we didn't have our communion service. Our retreats wouldn't be our retreats without our communion service. Every Saturday night at our fall retreat, at our snow camp, we create a space. We create a space where we remember what God's done for us. We reflect on where our lives are going and if that's the path we want to be on. At our communion services, we invite people to say yes to Jesus and to praise him through an extended time of worship, to pray with one of our leaders, to participate in the sacrament of Holy Communion. And so many people have said yes to Jesus during that moment at our communion service. If you don't believe me, just go right outside here at the studio. We've got a wall that testifies to the impact that those communion services are having on people's lives. For many of us in this room, that's Holy Communion. That's Communion. And if you're taking notes, here's the question we're going to wrestle with today. 
When is communion not holy communion? When is communion not holy communion? The word holy means set apart for a purpose. And communion services don't have to be identical, but today we're going to look at a section of Scripture that makes it clear there are times where people are calling something communion, but it's not communion. It's something else. And today we're going to see the Bible's got some very chilling warnings when you do that. If you're just joining us, we're in part, what are we in? Part nine or something like that? Part nine or eight in, in a series called Discovering um, Dear Suburban Church. We're exploring a first century letter called 1 Corinthians that was included in the Bible. Paul wrote this letter because a church that he had planted in Corinth had lost its way. It lost its way to the point where they actually sent a delegation from Corinth to go track down Paul. He was on the other side of the Aegean Sea in a city called Ephesus. They tracked him down to say, we are in trouble. Things are really going bad. Paul, we need your help. And this letter is about that. Evidently, a sizable portion of that church in Corinth had begun to set themselves apart saying, we are spiritual giants. And if you remember, if you've been here for the series, Paul said, you're not giants at all. You're a bunch of spiritual infants, he says. And one of the many examples that Paul points to as he calls them out were their communion services. In just a few minutes, you're going to see that for himself. Paul straight up says, that thing that you're doing, that you call the Lord's Supper, that is not the Lord's Supper. If you're taking notes, I invite you to write this down too. Let's explore what 1 Corinthians says about communion in context. And this matters for us because this passage that we're going to look at today, we can learn from their example. If a church that was planted by Paul himself could lose their way, we are full of so much pride if we think we can't too. So let's learn. And 1 Corinthians is also one of the most helpful places you can turn in the New Testament for this. In fact, we would not know much at all about how they were practicing communion in the early church if we didn't have 1 Corinthians. This is one of the few passages that actually talks about that. So we're about to see that Paul had some very, very strong feelings about this, really strong feelings about this. If you have your Bible with you, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 18. If you don't have a Bible at home, we invite you to hit pause right now, go to Bible.com. They have a free Bible app that you can download that's fantastic. All right, here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 and 18. This is Paul writing. He says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for better, but for the worse, he says. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe that in part. All right, if you were here when we started this series, just two weeks in to this series, out of this long list, long, long list of all of the dysfunctional, messed up things that were going on in Corinth, he started with what? Does anyone remember? Divisions. He starts with divisions. Out of all the topics he possibly could pick, and there's a lot of stuff they were doing that was messed up, he picked divisions. As he starts talking about their worship services, what does he say? Where does he start? Starts with divisions again. Divisions. He leads with it at the beginning. He leads with it here. In 1 Corinthians, Paul doesn't, this is so interesting, he doesn't just talk about one problem and then move on. All of this is related. And so he introduces this theme of division at the very beginning of his letter, chapter 1, and it 
weaves through all of these topics, including these worship services. Division is at the core of issues that Paul brings up again and again and again and again. There's other themes that Paul's also brought up. Raise your hand if you think any of these other themes that Paul has already brought up before we get here are related to Holy Communion. Let's start with this one. The importance of the cross and following Jesus' example of laying down his life. Does that relate to communion? Yes. All right, show of hands on the next one. The importance of understanding real spiritual maturity. Does that weigh into this at all? Yep. How about this? Our individual bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Does that relate to communion? Yes. How about this one? How we together are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Does that relate to communion? Yes. How about discussions of what we eat and who the food is dedicated to? Does that relate? Yes. How about this? Discussions about avoiding behaviors that send the wrong message about who we are as God's people. Does that relate? Yeah. All of that comes before this, and it's all related to what Paul's about to talk about with Holy Communion. Let's go back to our text. Paul had just said, I hear when you gather, there are divisions among you. Then we come to verse 19. There must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, it's really interesting to see what scholars do with this. The point of agreement among many seems to be that Paul appears to be saying, all right, if there's a silver lining in all of the division, it's this. At least we know who gets it and who doesn't. At least by your dividing up, we can see some of that. And here's what he says to those who don't get it. He says this in verses 20 through 22. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you for this? No, I will not. This is the part that I told you about earlier where he just says, hey, this thing you're doing, you may think that's the Lord's Supper. You may think that's communion. That is not holy communion. It's not the Lord's Supper. It's not the Eucharist, whatever you want to call it. In that time and in that place, what was happening here is that the church would gather together for a meal. So they would have an entire meal before they would enter into this time of Holy Communion. They would have some special bread set aside, special wine set aside. So when we're done eating this meal, then we would partake in this thing that they were calling Holy Communion. They were commemorating the holy moment that Jesus shared with his disciples. And here's how most scholars believe this division played out in their context. In that time, in that place, meals were a chance to show off your status. People were literally seated in, at a meal based on how you ranked in the room. That's how you sat. If you were really rich, sometimes you'd do this. To showcase your generosity, you would invite poor people to come to your house for a special meal. But in that time and that place, the rich people, often what they would do is they would do this in such a way where they would elevate themselves as the hosts to say, look how awesome and generous we are to you poor people. And they would find ways to make sure that the lessers knew that they were lessers. There'd be one dining room. Imagine this. There'd be one dining room for the host and the VIPs. Then there'd be other rooms of diminishing importance where the food got worse and probably even less. The churches in Corinth most likely met in the homes of a wealthier person. And when the church gathered, instead of meeting as one big family, they would just divide up with the same social lines that you saw everywhere else. 
It was like New Ulm Country Kitchen in the VIP room, Nebraska Country Kitchen, the further out you got. Only worse, because those who already had lots of food, they got a feast. Those who were poor and probably came hungry, they left hungry. In that culture, shaming is a huge problem. And Paul points out, did you see some of the language there? Quote, by doing this, you're despising the church, he says. And he says this, quote, you're humiliating those who have nothing. In that time, in that place, a lot of households had slaves. Can you imagine how the church in Corinth would shine if slaves were invited not just only to the table with the VIPs, but the VIPs were serving them. Can you imagine that? And isn't that what Jesus modeled? In the upper room, what did he do? He washed the disciples' feet. Again, this is a continuation of themes that Paul has already been weaving together. In fact, I want to invite you to do this. This is not rhetorical. I invite you to do this tonight. Read chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11 as one unit. The whole letter is one unit, but just go 8, 9, 10, 11, and look at how all this fits together. In 8 and 9, Paul contrasts, or 8 and 10, sorry. In 8 and 10, Paul contrasts idols and idol feasts with genuine faith. You think that relates at all to what he's talking about? And then right in the middle of 8 and 10, right in the middle of two chapters, in chapter 9, Paul devotes a whole section. How? He goes, I am an apostle. I could claim that right among you, and I could do certain things. I don't claim that right that I could claim. Do you think that has anything to do with this whole Lord's Supper where they're claiming the right? Hey, I'm the host. I'm the rich person. I go to the VIP room. In chapter 11, he connects these dots. He says, hey, you, you who are able to host these events, don't claim the right that you got to have others serve you. Use what you've been given to elevate others. But that's not what they're doing. And if you haven't already, try to picture this in your heads. Literally picture, here is this room where there's a feast and the rich people are laughing and they're having a great time. And then people are in the margins with lesser and lesser, including people who probably came hungry and they're just watching this distinction. Now that was happening all over Corinth. That was the normal. That was the culture. But now imagine this. Now at this church service, when this, this guy's the host is, what Paul already says, they're drunk, they're stuffed. They get up and say, and now what we're going to do is commemorate Jesus' sacrifice for us. Let's participate in the Lord's Supper. Do you see how like that just doesn't seem to work? While the poor are watching from the margins. Paul says, when you do that, you're showing contempt for this church that we founded and you are showing contempt for this sacred moment that we could be sharing. Paul continues on. He, he says this. And many of these, for you, if you're a part of our communion services, you're going to recognize these words. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death 
until he comes. Paul reminds them, he goes, guys, we're commemorating a real event. We are participating in something that Jesus did on the night of his betrayal. This is an event that also is connected to Passover, when the people of God were rescued from slavery at a great price. This is a recognition of a new covenant, one that was secured through sacrifice. And not only all of that, this is also a moment we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. It's meant to be different than other meals. It's meant to be so different that people are going, what is this? What is this thing that you're doing? But what did it become? It had become something that reflected their culture more than Christ. All right, let's begin to draw out some things that we can learn and apply from this. And let's start here. Communion is holy when we remember what we're participating in. Jesus' death, resurrection, and return. One of the things I'm trying really, really, really hard here at our church is to build into our culture at Emmanuel. The communion is something, you, you, you don't trivialize this. You don't joke about this. We're preparing for a communion service. And when we're doing that, one of the things I want to work really hard at is we shouldn't just act one way before and then, oh, now we flip a switch. Now it's communion time, especially when the cameras are on or when we step up in front. It shouldn't feel like that. So many scholars who've done the hard work of digging deeply into the texts that teach about Holy Communion, they said, what's going on here is we're doing more than remembering this. This might be hard with our, with our modern minds because we don't think like this. We're, we're not just remembering this event. We're participating in it. The language used in the Scripture seems to say that's what's happening. The language is stronger than symbolic when it comes to Holy Communion. This is a holy moment, one where Father, Son, and Spirit are here with us. And somehow when we gather, even time, as we know it gets blurred. We participate in things that have happened, and we proclaim things that are yet to come in a moment that's right here. Here's an example that I'm talking about. The scholars, they say things like this as they dig into the text. They say, the Eucharist is a moment, the moment, when the past event comes forward to live again in the present, and the future moment of the Lord's return comes backwards in time to challenge us in the present. Misbehaving in relation to this meal, it's misbehaving in relation to the Lord himself. All right, it shouldn't surprise you by now that Paul introduced this theme earlier too. In chapter 10, Paul uses language how people in the time of Moses were, quote, being baptized and, quote, eating the same spiritual food. And then that flows right into discussion about partaking in one loaf and a cup of blessing in their time. Also woven in the very fabric of that chapter that comes right before this one, it's a warning that says don't make the same mistakes that they did in Moses' time. And then what comes next is an echo of chapter 10. These are verses 27 through 29. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine themselves then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on themselves. This had very specific implications for the Corinthians. Consider this quote. The warning not to drink the quote, 
quote, drink the cup, quote, in an unworthy manner, was not intended to introduce a new agenda to the discussion. It's in reference to these things that we just talked about. The divisiveness, the selfishness, the drunkenness that had crept into their observance. Every generation, every generation has got its own stuff. For them, it's what we described. In the days of Moses, it was something else. Today, what are we doing? You know, how are we turning what could be a holy moment into just cultural appropriation of, of something different, something that was meant to be holy? Which is why, if we desire to experience holy communion together, I invite you to write this down too and then to apply this. Communion is holy when we repent of our sin and our sins. To repent is a turn. It's to turn from going our own way to the way of Jesus and placing our trust in the word of God. All right, what do I mean when I say repent from our sin and our sins? The Bible holds a lot of things in tension. And one of the things that the Bible seems to say two things that are both true. In one sense, when we say yes to receiving Jesus, Savior, and Lord, the Bible says things like this. If anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has passed away, past tense, and the new has come. The Bible also says things like this. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. So there's one sense in which when we repent, these things have happened. They're done. It's kind of like, let's use the road trip analogy. You're on a road trip, you're heading one way, and you recognize I'm going the wrong way. You do a U-turn, and you start going the other way. In one sense, that's sin singular. I've repented. I was going this way. Now I'm going the other way. That language is in the Bible. And after the U-turn, the Bible also uses language that we still need ongoing correction. I think that's the sins, right? Where, we're okay, we've made the big sin, change, but now you've got those little corrections where you're going off the road, we still need to make those corrections. Does that make sense? And an example of the language where that shows up in the Bible is one that we say at almost every one of our communion services at the end. Say it with me, actually, if you've memorized this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, our sins. This is why Paul could do this. When Paul opened the book of Corinthians and addresses this letter, he calls them the saints. And then what does he do later? He calls them out for all the knucklehead behavior. Both of those things can be true. It's true of us, right? We're both saints and knuckleheads. We, we are both of these things, you know, which is why Paul could do that. And why at Emmanuel, we can do two things. We can celebrate how far we've come and we build communion into our regular rhythms because it helps us remember how far we have to go, too. Both of those things are true. I think Michael Horton sums it up really well with this quote. He goes, repentance is unfinished but comprehensive. Isn't that good? If you were sincere when you said yes to Jesus, your repentance was comprehensive. There has been a change of status for you from not in Christ to in Christ, from lost to found, from death to life, from I don't know you to sons and daughters. And there's always going to be unfinished business, which can have serious consequences. I spent a long time since I've continued reading those, we call them the words of institution, what we just read about, um, about the body and the, and the blood. Look what comes next. Paul warns us about the consequences of, of drifting 
when it comes to the sins. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. What do you do with that? Now, there's a lot more to this verse that we can get into right now, but I would hope we could all agree on this, that Paul has some really, really strong words to say for those who would approach Holy Communion in what he calls an unworthy manner. Evidently, it can even affect your physical body as an individual. The other thing it can do, it affects our body together as a church. Just for fun, I looked up the New Ulm Country Kitchen. It's closed. It's closed. I'm not sure what happened, but I'm going to put money on something happened with them forgetting who they were. When churches do that, when we forget who we are, bad things happen. This isn't just something for individuals. This can happen to us together. Let's go back to our text one last time, verses 33 through 34. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait. Wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let them eat at home. They're talking to the rich people right there. So that when you come together, I will not be for judgment. About the other things, I'll give you directions when I come. In that time and in that place where the Corinthian Christians had a chance to model something very different, what did they do? They just looked like everybody else. If you're taking notes, I invite you to write one, one more thing that makes Holy Communion holy. Communion is holy when we reflect on the kind of kingdom community that God invites us into. The Greek word used in the scriptures is koinonia. Koinonia doesn't have a direct um, translation into English. It is a rich, rich form of fellowship and connectedness where we reflect the kind of relationship that God the Father, Son, and Spirit have. And not just reflect it, when we enter into a relationship with God the Father, Son, and Spirit and one another. That's koinonia. Now, from the start, we've done our best as a church to say, we're going to try to apply what the Scriptures teach us about Holy Communion. And we are honored that the primary place we meet in person is the Shoreview Community Center. Why do I say we're honored? Because God's trusted us to steward that space and to model these things well. Because of that, I want to invite you to write this down and think about the implications. We're uniquely positioned to embody something that the world needs to see more of. We're uniquely positioned to do that. You ever seen the parking lot when you come in at 1030 service? God led us to a place that's very, very public. And every time we gather, we have the opportunity for communion to participate in something that speaks louder than words. Think how few opportunities there are out there that people have in our culture to witness what we're doing when we commemorate communion. Where people from so many different backgrounds, people who wouldn't otherwise be in the same room, people who the culture is trying to divide. Our culture wants to divide us up, chop us up into pieces, divide us by race, divide us by gender, divide us by age, divide us by social status, divide us by political affiliation, divide us by what news channel you watch, divide us by whether or not you like Country Kitchen. <laughs> you guys think about, think about how few places people can come and see a gathering like sincere Holy Communion. Where we're not gathering to say, you know those people who aren't like us. Or you know those people who aren't as good as us. Where we come and say, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. Truth is not in us. 
where we're coming and saying, regardless of what other people are going to do, God, I'm coming before you. I'm holding myself to a higher standard. I'm submitting my life to you. These people in this room, we're brothers and sisters. And we're going to treat each other like that. And with one voice, with one voice, we confess that we've fallen short, that we need help, and that we're committing to walk the path that Jesus walked. A path marked by love for our neighbors, one that marked by love for people you disagree with, a path marked by humility and self-sacrifice. That is so rare, so rare and so needed. And not only that, not only are we modeling that for other people who are going to say, what is that? What's going on there? It's participation in something bigger than us. It's koinonia with the creator of the universe. It's reconnecting with the death and resurrection of his son. It's inviting the Holy Spirit to dwell within us, to change us from the inside out. This is choosing life. This is finding a treasure worth losing everything to gain. This is laying your whole life down and honoring the high king of heaven. There's so much the Bible doesn't say about the sacrament of Holy Communion. It doesn't give a specific age. It doesn't give a specific method. It doesn't prescribe a specific type of bread or wine. So as a church, we're not going to argue about those things. We're not. Instead, we're going to join those who have gone before us and participate in a holy moment as one. At Emmanuel, the only one who's going to keep you from the Lord's table is you. If you can sincerely pray these prayers we're about to pray, we welcome you as a brother, as a sister at this table. All right, so for those of you who are here, we're not going to have any ushers that are going to be saying, now is your time to come forward. We're going to pray some prayers together with one voice, and then we're going to invite you to make those prayers your own. And then make full use of this space. If you'd like to use the kneeler, kneeling altar, or, uh, there, there. If you want to pray where you are in your chair, if you want to make use of the space, do what will help make this real and sincere for you. For those of you joining us at home, um, this is a moment that blurs space and time. Wherever you are, you can participate with us in this holy moment. Take some time, make the prayers that we pray your own, and then join us. All right, well, let's do it. Let's prepare ourselves now. I invite you to pray these prayers along with me because we all, <laughs> we all need to pray these prayers. Heavenly Father, to whom all hearts and minds are open and all desires are known, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may more perfectly love you and more worthily magnify your holy name. We confess that we are sinners and cannot save ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We've not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. We are not worthy for these gifts which we are about to receive, but say the word and we will be made clean. Father, we're so thankful 
that you are so good, that you can see us as saints even though we fall so short of that. Thank you for not giving up on us. And Father, we pray that that would give us so much more grace for others to the extent that we've been forgiven, that we could extend that towards other people. Lord, I pray, we pray that you'll, your Holy Spirit would descend upon us, those of us in this room, those who are watching, wherever we are. And Lord, whatever part of that prayer you needed to shine a spotlight on for our own good, for our neighbor's good, we pray that you'd do that. If there are other things, Lord, that you would bring to mind that could help us become more like your son, that could protect us from going so far off the road that we hit something, do damage to ourselves or others. Lord, we pray that this would be a time where we could get a clearer vision of who you are and what your calling is on our life. And we're so thankful that we're not alone. Lord, help us to become a people who, with humility and courage, press into these types of texts and really try to live these things out by the power of your Holy Spirit. And now, Father, is another act of, of solidarity. Um, before we join our verses in song and, and participate in the sacrament, we pray this prayer that you taught your disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.